Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we, that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. 
What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. May the Lord bless his word as it has been read and now as it is preached. Our text this Lord's Day is from Proverbs chapter 17, verses 17 and 18. Let me read for you our text. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. To go through life without a friend or without friends who will stand with you in prosperity or in poverty, in peace or in adversity, and in health or in illness is one of the greatest miseries of this life. Whereas to enjoy such a friendship is indeed one of the greatest blessings God gives in this life. One of the greatest comforts God blesses us with. However, God says in Proverbs 18.24 that if you would have friends, you must show yourself to be a friend. But how does one show himself or herself to be a friend? Well, from our text, chiefly, he loves at all times. He loves at all times. Dear ones, how we need to have families. And within those families are members who are friends rather than adversaries with whom we continually bicker like a dripping faucet. How we need to have a church full of friends rather than rivals with whom we compete for spiritual giftedness and public attention. Dear ones, if we do not view ourselves as friends one with the other within our church, not merely by our profession, but by our words and our deeds, we will eventually distrust one another to such an extent that we will second-guess and become suspicious of the motive of every word and deed that proceeds from a brother or from a sister. If we are not friends, you can write it down. We will eventually become outright foes. There's no in-between here. There's no neutrality. It's either we are friends and we work at being friends or we will become enemies. The main points from our text this Lord's Day are the following. Number one, a friend loves at all times. Proverbs 17, 17. Secondly, a friend loves with understanding. Proverbs 17:18. Let us consider then our first main point. A friend loves at all times. Look with me again at Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, 
and a brother is born for adversity. Very often it seems that we, even as Christians, practice a very strange and contradictory idea of love toward those with whom we are bound together, either by natural or by covenantal ties. By our thoughts, words, and actions, so often we seem to think that it is a less serious sin to offend a family member than a total stranger. Simply reflect for a moment on the cruel words you may have said or uttered or the offensive actions you may have committed against a family member that you would never have thought of committing against a total stranger. Our family members, whether in the natural family or in the family of God, less deserving of respect, love, and patience than strangers, not according to God. Let me give you several examples. For example, cursing a stranger is a grievous sin, as Christ said that we are not to curse our enemies out of personal vengeance in Matthew chapter 5. But cursing one's parents is so abominable to God that he says such a mature child who does so should be put to death in Exodus 21.17. Stealing from a, st- a stranger, a second example, Stealing from a stranger is always sin, according to the Eighth Commandment. In Exodus 20:15, thou shalt not steal. But defrauding a brother in Christ is especially heinous, according to the Apostle Paul. So we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 8. Listen to what Paul says. I'll begin with verse 7. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Notice what he says now in verse 8. Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and this is where the aggravation comes, and that your brethren. You defraud your own brothers your own sisters in Christ. That's an aggravation of fraud. Thirdly, a third example, what would you think of a father who fed and clothed all the neighbor's children down the street while his own children ran around hungry and naked? God tells you what he thinks of such a person. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, where he says, in verse 8. <clears throat> but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. God is very serious about us taking care of our family members and loving especially those to whom we are bound by natural ties and covenantal ties. A fourth example. It is a sin to spread strife among all men. For according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12:18, we are to seek to live at peace as much as possible with all men. So that would mean that we're not to spread strife among any man. But it is especially an aggravated sin to sow strife among brethren, according to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. I will read that entire passage. Notice what he says. Solomon speaking. These six things that the Lord hates, yet seven, are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that devises wicked imaginations, Feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and lastly, and he that soweth discord among brethren. <clears throat> Dear ones, you are bound together as adopted children into God's family through the blood of Christ who died to purchase you unto himself. 
Now, as a member of God's family, God commands you to do good to all men, even to strangers, but especially to do good to those who are of the household of faith, according to Galatians 6.10. Love, dear ones, begins at home. How can we love those outside who are not brethren if we can't even love the brethren? In fact, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4.20, how can we love God whom we have not seen if we cannot love our brother or our sister whom we have seen? And if we should point our finger at others but not bow before God and cry out to the Lord saying, I'm the man, I'm the woman, I'm the child that is guilty of this sin, it only demonstrates how much we have truly deceived ourselves. If we do not think that to varying degrees we're all guilty of this sin, we have merely blinded our own eyes and deceived ourselves. This so clearly shows how much we need the mercy and the forgiveness of our Savior and the power of God's Spirit to grow in love for one another. We are short-tempered, impatient, overly critical and harsh towards those whom we are especially to love. But until we acknowledge this sin to be ours, we will be like a man suffering from cancer in his body who will not acknowledge he has it and therefore seek the help that is available to destroy it. And what is the solution to this gross contradiction in our lives? We who are members of Christ need also to learn, according to our text, to be friends. To be friends rather than competitors. To be friends rather than foes. To be friends rather than mere acquaintances. In fact, our English word friend is derived from the Gothic term for love or lover. The Hebrew text here in Proverbs chapter 17, 17 literally says, not a friend, but the friend. The friend. Not just any person who calls himself a friend, but the, the friend. That is, the true friend. That one is one who continues to love in all of time, who continues to love unabated in all of time. Such a particular expression and qualification of a friend we see leaves us totally out of the picture in our own strength. It's impossible. It shows us, therefore, our desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ if we would be a friend to one another. Let me list for you some things that love does and does not do to a friend. He's going to itemize these and write these down. There's, there's several of them. I've got quite a few listed here. But uh, I'll try and go through them slowly. These are things that love does and does not do to a friend. First, love covers the sins of a friend when they are slight, and unintentional, non-malicious, and private. And if it is all possible, love covers the sin of a friend and does not gossip or spread an evil report about him. Secondly, love is patient with a friend and does not burst out in anger against them. Thirdly, love waits to hear the response of a friend when there is a problem and does not assume the worst about him. He waits to hear. Fourth, love works and prays for reconciliation when there is a division between friends and does not seek to get even with them. Fifth, love shows mercy and does not ignore a friend when there is a legitimate, genuine need. He doesn't turn a deaf ear to the plea of a friend when there is a legitimate need and you have the ability to help. Sixth, 
Love is content with the gifts and graces which, with which God has blessed him and does not envy the gifts and graces of a friend. There's not this rivalry. There's not this competition when we understand the love of a friend. Rather, love, to the contrary, rejoices in the gifts and the graces with which God has blessed your friend. And do you know that the Lord says in his word that even though those gifts and graces may not be actually your possession, you have communion in the gifts and the graces and you benefit from all the gifts and the graces of your brethren. Seventh, Love cherishes the truth and righteousness of God and does not avoid going to a friend when there is a problem, even if it is uncomfortable. Love does not give that responsibility to someone else to do for him, but sees it as a duty of love particularly if it is a friend that has offended him to go to him or to go to her. Because love says, I want to deal with this particular friend. In the spirit of meekness and love. Eighth, love thinks of what is most spiritually profitable for a friend and does not merely think of what is best for himself or herself. What will be spiritually a blessing to this particular person? Not merely, what will I get out of it? How will I be benefited? Ninth, love speaks the truth in humility and in meekness to a friend that is living in sin or in error and does not approve of sin in his life. A true friend doesn't approve of sin or error in the life of a friend. Tenth, love stands upon his word and does not break lawful covenants and promises to a friend. He swears to his own hurt. His word is his trust, his commitment to do what is right, to be faithful to what he has said. Eleven, love focuses more on how he can encourage a friend than on how he can be critical of his friend's weaknesses. There is a time certainly to point out the sins of others. But where our focus is more upon the weaknesses of others than seeking to encourage others, we're not loving as we ought to love. Dear ones, to encourage a friend is not flattery, but encouragement. It is encouragement if it is true. If what you're saying is true, it's not flattery, it is the truth. The Lord calls us to encourage one another if we are friends. Twelve. Love seeks to understand the peculiar circumstances of a friend and does not quickly form judgments about him or his situation. How often our judgments about others are formed by our own perception rather than by an honest evaluation of peculiar circumstances of others. Yes, we use the same standard of judgment, always God's law. God's truth. But we need to understand the particular and peculiar circumstances of others if we would truly be loving a friend. Thirteen, which leads from number twelve, love applies the same standard of truth, namely God's holy law, to a friend as he does to others and does not engage in using a double standard. Fourteen. Just got uh, four more. Fourteen. Love prays for a friend and does not harbor resentment and bitterness toward a friend. It's hard to be resentful and bitter when you have been on your knees earnestly praying for a friend. Very difficult to rise up from prayer and immediately to harbor that bitterness and anger in your soul toward another. 15. 
love realizes that only God can ultimately change a friend's heart and does not nag and does not hound him continuously until he surrenders out of mere exhaustion to stop the dripping faucet. Sixteen, love enjoys communion with a friend and does not cherish a state of isolation from him. There's something between friends. A real friend is not comfortable with that. It's not enjoyable. A real friend is going to do everything that he or she possibly can to deal with that problem. And lastly, and I think most importantly, love glorifies Christ first and foremost with a friend and does not glorify first and foremost amusements, hobbies, work, accomplishments, dreams, or self with a friend. If your friendship, dear ones, is based merely upon common pleasures, shared interests, a mere physical attraction, or only a likable personality, your friendship cannot glorify Jesus Christ. If that is all that your friendship is based upon. You know, these things I've just mentioned may be true or present in a true friendship. You may share similar amusements and, and shared interests and, and those types of things. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But true friends desire above all else to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Just some examples. You could probably add many more what love does and does not do to a friend. We also observe from Proverbs 17, 17 that the true friend loves, it says, at all times. At all times. A true friend is not like the changeable seasons of the year, a fair weather friend, dying out in the fall and winter and reviving again in the spring and in the summer. A friend's love is constant in all circumstances. Some examples of a constancy of love between friends in the Bible. Jonathan's love for David. We find Jonathan, the son of the king, King Saul, who was to be the next in line to inherit the throne. But God had appointed and ordained that David should be the next king. Jonathan knew that. Did that affect in any way Jonathan's love for David? Absolutely not. He made a covenant with David because he loved David as his own soul, the Bible says. He made a covenant with David that David, that they would mutually protect and preserve one another, and not only one another, but one another's posterity as well. When Saul was so angry, persecuting, chasing David, there was Jonathan, faithful to the very end, in all circumstances. Or it's like Ruth's love for Naomi. In Ruth chapter 1, one of the most blessed testimonies of friendship, in which so often has been used in marriages because a husband and wife above any other relationship should be the closest of friends. In Ruth chapter 1, <clears throat> Naomi was about to leave the land of, of Midian, or Moab, I'm sorry, and was penniless, was poor. Uh, she had nothing to offer Ruth at all. Her husband had died. Her sons had died. The, 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 the husbands of, of Ruth and Orpah. She was without anything. I mean, she had nothing. And she was returning back to Bethlehem, her home city there in Judah. And she encouraged these girls to stay with their families, to continue there with their families, because 
She couldn't produce any sons for them. She couldn't care for them. But listen to the response of Ruth to Naomi. Naomi's first speaking in verse 15. And she, that is Naomi, said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God my God. Where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Amazing testimony of a friendship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Certainly the example par excellence is that of Christ with his disciples. Weak and frail as they were in John chapter 13, verse 1. Many times, having completely missed the point as to what Christ was to accomplish in his death and his resurrection, more concerned about themselves and who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God rather than in what Christ was to experience and to go through. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, the night before he was crucified, it says in John chapter 13, verse 1, Now, be, now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father. Having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. He was a friend who loved at all times, unto the end of time. My wife related to me a number of years ago how she had endured one of those days when nothing she put her hands to seemed to go as, it, as she had planned. She was so frustrated, then she became so convicted for how she had acted out her frustration. Lana was heard by one of our small children, who was probably about four years of age at the time. Lana was heard to call out to the Lord, how could the Lord be so merciful to her and love her when she had allowed her frustration to bring her to such a low point. And out of seemingly nowhere, Alana heard this little four-year-old recite her memory verse from the Bible. A friend loved at all times. Out of the mouth of babes thou hast established strength. We were taught in God's Word. Lana was broken as the Spirit of God illuminated her understanding to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is a friend who loves at all times. After all, dear ones, He didn't go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin believing we were, we were holy, righteous, and good. But knowing every sin that would corrupt and pollute us, knowing the worst about us, he died for us, dear Christian. Having loved us and died for us when we were his enemy, he will certainly love us forever, having now made us the very children of God. Who can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38-39, if I were to summarize it, he says, Nothing. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. There is a friend, dear one, who sticks closer to us than a brother. And finally, note in Proverbs 17, 17, that the true friend who loves at all times, it says, is a brother born for adversity. This continues the theme of constancy from the previous stanza. You see, when difficult times come, the true friend doesn't desert and abandon the one who is loved, as we said. The true friend even carries, if necessary, the friend upon his back. 
as the lyrics from a song say it so well, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. Do you find having to carry a brother in the time of adversity to be burdensome and a pure obligation? Perhaps you have forgotten how Jesus Christ has carried your sins and your transgressions to the cross. Perhaps you have not reflected in some time how the Lord daily carries your burdens and all your many weaknesses every day. Can you say that about your brother? He's your friend and he ain't heavy. He's my brother. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ is a friend born to bear us up in our adversity. And he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. One would think so. As weak, frail, as sinful, and as much shame as we have brought to his most holy name, one would think he'd be ashamed to call us his brethren. The Bible says he's not ashamed to call you his brethren. When we feel as though we cannot go another step, the Lord comes to us and by his word and spirit he protects us. He provides for us. He encourages us. And he renews our faith and our hopes that we rise again to even the seventh time to face that battle and that war and to press on. Do you think you do that in your own strength? Don't deceive yourself. It is the Lord that picks you up again. It is the Lord that carries you. And he does so because he is a friend to sinners. He is a friend to sinners who confess their need of him, confess their sin, in need of his mercy and grace. And he promises that he will never leave nor forsake those who trust in him alone for their eternal salvation. Now, none of us can ever expect to be a true friend to anyone apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ is the true friend into whose image we must be conformed. We want to know what a true friend is? Look to Jesus Christ. There's a true friend. Christian love, dear ones, is not a, a natural disposition with which we are born. It is a supernatural grace freely purchased by Christ and graciously applied by the Spirit of God to all those who are effectually called unto God. Thus, to the degree that we manifest any genuine love in our lives as true friends, we have nothing in which we can boast concerning ourselves. Nothing at all. We love God and we love the brethren because God first loved us. Our boasting must therefore not be in ourselves, but our boasting, when we love as we ought, our boasting must be in God and in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The amazing truth that Jesus Christ is a friend that loves at all times and is a brother born for adversity should melt your heart, dear ones. It should melt your heart and mind in utter humility, pouring contempt upon all our pride, rather than puffing our hearts up with pride and arrogance. We should be groveling in the dust when we see what Christ has done for us. We should be truly humbled. Our second main point, and this will be much briefer, a friend loves with understanding. Proverbs 17:18. Let me read that verse for you. A man void of understanding striketh hands and becometh surety in the presence of his friend. I submit to you that there is a connection in thought between Proverbs 17.17 17 and Proverbs 17.18. The connection may be summarized in this way. First, we learn the nature of friendship. The true friend loves. Second, we learn and see the constancy of friendship. The true friend loves at all times. Now, in Proverbs 17:18, we note that the true friend who loves at all times does not always bail his friend out of every difficult situation, for the true friend seeks to understand 
what is really best and most spiritually profitable for his friend. He tries to understand what is truly best for his friend. He doesn't bail him out. He doesn't come to his rescue in every particular situation. The connection between Proverbs 17.17 and Proverbs 17.18 is the word friend, which occurs in both passages. That's what draws these two passages together. Both verses deal with how we are to be a friend. Well, what is the historical or cultural context of Proverbs 17.18? In other words, what's going on here in Proverbs 17.18? What we have here is a friend who has apparently become indebted to a creditor and who comes to his friend beseeching him to come to his financial aid by paying off the debt he owed to his creditor. For a person who paid off the debt on behalf of another was called a surety. He stood in the place of the debtor until that debt was paid in full. Legally, the debtor, the original debtor, was no longer held responsible to make payment for his debt when the surety stood in his place. The debt in its entirety was transferred to the surety. And the formal action that ratified this legal arrangement is here referred to as striking the hands. This would seem to be close to shaking hands, but perhaps with a little more energy. You know, bringing the hands together like this. With the creditor, the surety and the creditor, striking hands together on behalf of the debtor. Now, there was and is nothing wrong in and of itself for one to become surety for his friend in such an indebted situation. There is no outright condemnation of such a practice in this passage or in any place in the Word of God. It may in some situations be a true act of love and mercy and friendship to become a surety, to pay off the debt, as it were, for a friend. But the caution here that is given to us from King Solomon has to do with a friend who blindly, rashly, without understanding, without thinking whether he has the ability to pay off the debt of his friend or even whether it is in the best interest of his friend to pay off his debt, quickly agrees to do something because simply he is his friend. He doesn't think it through. He doesn't reason. This, Solomon says, is a man lacking in understanding. It's a friend lacking in understanding. The love of friendship, beloved, is not lacking in understanding, however. I would submit to you, therefore, here's an important qualification to friendship and love to others. Although a friend is one who loves at all times, that friendship and that love do not necessarily bind one to bail a friend out of every dire circumstance in which he may find himself. In fact, to do so may demonstrate that you're not a true friend, that you don't truly love this person because you're more interested in relieving their discomfort and their pain than in them learning lessons, building of character. For he may indeed need to learn in the school of hard knocks by the Holy Spirit teaching him that the love of a true friend is not a safety net into which he may fall after making foolish, irresponsible, and ill-advised decisions. This is what some may call tough love, but it is, dear ones, in such cases a genuine love exercised by a true friend when it is not done vindictively to get even with the person, but rather for the glory of Christ and for the welfare and the good of the friend who is loved. Now, dear ones, it is never easy, as we all probably can attest to, it's never easy to tell a friend that you cannot come to his rescue when there is a need. But it may be necessary and a necessary part of love 
if you truly care for him to do so to not come to his rescue however when this is necessary that you don't simply bail a friend out prayer in carrying a friend through such a difficult situation if he listens and learns you may want to offer more tangible help if you're able however if he spurns your advice and counsel you may need to draw back from him for a season praying that the Lord will humble him through this circumstance and situation in closing today let us never forget that we all were in a state of indebtedness to a holy God we were debtors having sinned in every way having inherited a sinful nature from Adam being imputed the sin of of Adam being guilty of our own personal sins sins of omission sins of commission sins of ignorance sins intentionally committed sins less aggravated sins more aggravated sins committed against God sins committed against our fellow man sins in our thoughts sins in our words sins in our deeds in every imaginable way we had sinned against God and been in, and become indebted to the Most High God there was no way there was absolutely no way in which we could pay off this debt we were going to pay the ultimate cost for our indebtedness to God eternal punishment in hell every day we lived we became more and more and more indebted it wasn't that we were working our debt off we were digging our hole deeper and deeper and deeper every day we lived but God had mercy upon us God had mercy upon us and he covenanted with his own dear son in eternity past they struck hands they struck hands together and Jesus Christ and that covenant of redemption made in eternity became our surety he promised to pay our debt he promised to pay the debt of every sin the guilt and the condemnation of sin on behalf of his elect those who deserve his eternal condemnation and he came and he stood in the place as our surety he stood in the place of God's elect suffering the shameful death of the cross and the infinite wrath of God not for friends we were not we did not view God as our friend certainly at that time but as enemies that we might become his friends that we might become the righteousness of God in him we could not learn dear ones from our indebtedness as some of our friends today may learn good lessons from their indebtedness when we don't come to their rescue and aid they may learn we pray they can there's no way in the world we would ever have learned from our indebtedness in this situation the only way that we learn of our indebtedness is through the mercy and the grace of God and Christ becoming our surety Christ bore it all for us imputed to us by faith as perfect righteousness may the love of our surety the Lord Jesus Christ fill us so that we may know how to be a true friend that loves at all times please stand with me in prayer <clears throat> our most merciful Savior we come to thee Father Son and Holy Ghost we come to thee bowing and acknowledging O Lord our own natural indebtedness how we have offended thee brought shame to thee how we have lived our lives even since becoming Christians living in ignorance negligence living in rebellion against thee living O Lord in spite of the light which thou has given to us we have continued to walk in our wayward path we have not loved the truth as we ought we have not loved our brethren as uh, as we ought 
We have not loved holiness as we ought, and we certainly have not loved thee as we ought. And yet, O Lord our God, the love of our friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, has purchased us unto thyself, and we belong to thee. And all of these sins have been paid for by our surety. We, O Lord our God, cannot legally stand responsible now for these sins, the sins we have committed against thee because of our Savior. We have been forever set free. And Father, we pray that such a love would change and transform our own minds and attitudes that we, Father, would desire and endeavor to grow in our love for one another. We pray, Father, that Thou would forgive us of all of our sins and ways in which we have not shown love for one another. Cause us, O Lord, to walk in the paths of our Savior. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.